Stuff, a show about helping creatives empower themselves through their own creative works. I'm your host, Kyle F. Andrews. I'm an actor, writer, producer, and sometimes dancer when the mood strikes. This week's guest is Jason Perlman. He is an Emmy Award-nominated director and executive producer of the Hulu series Zack and Mia, and he's the creator and showrunner of the thriller anthology series Sleep Tight. He also created and directed the Jojo Siwa and Nickelodeon television special Jojo's Dream Birthday. He has directed, written, produced, and been showrunner for original scripted content and unscripted branded content for everything from Awesomeness and DreamWorks TV to The Nerdist to Lucasfilm, Google, Hasbro, and a bunch of other clients. This is absolutely one of my favorite conversations ever. Jason knows his stuff. He knows the business. He knows how to make his stuff in the business. And he had a lot of great advice about how you might be able to make your stuff. So this conversation goes a while. I think it is worth every minute. Here is my conversation with Jason Perlman. Well, Jason, I'm so excited to have you here today. You are one of my favorite people in the industry. Thank you for coming on my show. Thanks so much, Kyle. I'm excited to be here. And this is this is going to be great. You know, I, I think one of my reasons for bringing you onto the podcast is because you are one of the most prolific makers of stuff that I know. And since this podcast is called Make Your Stuff, I figured that this was a good, you know, introduction into how various fields uh, in the entertainment industry can kind of work together because you've made film, you've made TV, music videos, documentaries, commercials, public service announcements, you know, you've run the whole gamut. So what is it in the entertainment industry that you are most gravitating towards as a creative as you're working through this stuff? Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, for the very kind words. I got to say, like, well, you know, like he hearing that I'm prolific I, I, is a nice thing to hear. At the same time, I always feel like I need to be doing more. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, what do I gravitate towards? I, I mean, it, it varied at different points in my career. And I mean, I think at first it was like, I want to I want to make things that, you know, like reflect my worldview. And, you know, like I. I want to make great things with my friends and I still do like that. It's funny. It's like I've spent probably 15, 16 years now working in entertainment, trying to get back to like the feelings that I had in like high school and college about like making things with my friends and making things that I felt mattered. Cause like about three or four years into being out in LA and like not getting a lot of, a lot of gigs that I wanted, I was like, Oh, well I need to just do whatever is going to pay me and pay the bills and learn from that and like learn through getting paid on projects that maybe aren't things that I would make normally, but those are good creative exercises to work around the obstacle of, okay, <laughs> I wouldn't make this myself, but I'm being paid to. So what value can I find in it? So I, I always try to find the intersection of what the job is and what my passion is. Uh, and there's usually along like the, like, like <laughs> along the road, of like those two things, there's an, a place where they intersect. And then I really just try and like drill down into that one point of like, okay, here's what this project's trying to say. Here's what I would like to say with this project and what's important to me or something. Here's something I can learn from that project, be it a new production technique, shooting with a new lens, working with a new team, or even like, I haven't tried to say this thing about the world. Maybe this is the vehicle for that and explore it. Um, that's always something I try to find, but now, you know, like I've, I've made a lot of projects and, you know, like I kind of like bought myself a little bit of time to develop 
my own ideas and, and concepts. Now I've kind of found myself at this new place where I'm trying to get back to, well, what are those kind of stories I want to tell? But then also, <laughs> how do I get people to buy them? And how do I, and how do I attract that investment or partnership to make these bigger projects a reality? So would you say that, you know, a 15, 16 career, holy cow, when you put it that way, you and I went to college together. So of course, you know, that's been the same length of time that I've had to work on this stuff. And I, I noticed that in, in the making of the creative stuff, there is, like you, you mentioned, the intersection of the, the personal attachment to it as an artist, and then the maybe even deeper attachment to it as a source of income. And I think that's a, a bridge that a lot of creatives, especially as they're building up in the industry, it's a bridge that they want to cross, but they don't want to sell out, quote unquote. So, so when you're working on that, even if it's a project that you know you're doing as a money gig, are you able to put your voice in the project? Or is it like, I'm just taking this money, I'm going to move on, uh, whatever they do with it is fine by me? It depends. You know, like, I think that you know, like I, I did some like not, I didn't work as a director on this. I worked as a producer, but I did like some like some videos for a like a, a popular app, um, and I just produced them. And so I was just like, I'm gonna put all the pieces that they need, and they just needed a white void, and like there's no there's nothing I needed to do with that. Like it was very it was actually the most relaxed I think I've ever been on set. It was a really nice experience. They were the the, the uh, brand partner was great. Uh, the crew was great. It was a really simple uh, gig. Um, a lot of, you know, producing work, but, you know, it was it was good. But I mean, like, it just depends. Like, if it's like, if it's branded or commercial, there are things you have to do, but then you also have to sell them on your unique spin on it and like why it should be you to bring this vision to life without totally going in a completely different direction than their boards or their concept um, or what they're comfortable with as a brand. You know, I think that when you're working, you know, like I had an experience recently where I did... Uh, some shorts for a uh, uh, a popular network, and um, they were all being paid for via a third party production company. And I I believe that I was hired to kind of bring my unique spin to you know like this like creative content. It was scripted. I written them. I directed them. Um, I produced them with the partner. And uh, when I got there, I I was made to feel like I was not hired for what I could bring to it as a unique creative, I was really hired to just do whatever they told me. And like, that was news to me. Uh, <laughs> so like, I think that it really does change depending on what kind of a project, how in control you are of that project, and really ultimately who your collaborators are. And one of the big things I'm trying to really set personal boundaries on are, okay, when I take on a project, what am I willing to put up with? from a collaborator, even if they're paying me, and what am I not willing to put up with? Like, mm -hmm. I'm not willing to put up with people who are rude or break decorum on a set. Uh, I'm not willing to put up with people who I feel have malicious intent um, or whose ego drives the entire production. Um, you know, like those are things that I've been coming to grips with recently with projects that uh, I, I just realized I, I put up with for a long, long time. Like I, I worked, for a long time, I think sacrificing my own, not sacrificing, uh, finding collaborative compromises on things that were not to my benefit. And I'm realizing now, oh, I did that in spite of myself to keep a job. 
And I just have less patience for that now. Well, because so I, do think I, I love that, that word you said, collaborative compromises. I think that phrase is, is a useful phrase to, to think about, but certainly you don't want to you know, just be a yes man where you're agreeing to whatever the other person is because they have the power and you don't have any. What sort of collaborative compromises are, are good and which ones are the ones that you want to kind of avoid? Uh, I think a good collaborative compromise is one in which both parties come out feeling heard and respected. And I think a bad collaborative compromise is when one is bullied into an approach and kind of just like loses a negotiation based on fear or based on a power structure uh, that is unhealthy. And I think that a lot of our industry is based on that. And I think that no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter how you identify, um, I think that our industry has created such an environment generationally that no matter how you came up, you've been affected by it. And I think that it's getting better, but I don't think that we are even close to like an, an equitable shake between the people that finance and the people that create. And I think that, that we're getting actually farther and farther away from uh, an equitable split in creative control and financial outcome um, between uh, the people that fund and the people that make the thing, um, mainly because there are fewer and fewer owners of content. And while I want to work for all of these purveyors of uh, fine entertainment, it is hard to see like uh, gains uh, continue to be lost on the creative side. Yeah, I, I hear that. It's it's interesting to see what happens when private equity comes into play. You're starting to see smaller and smaller pieces of the pie going to the actual creatives. Um, let me ask you, because you do have that experience as writer, as director, as producer, as all of those together, do you find more comfort or more ability to get your work across in one of those um, pursuits? Or, or do they kind of all have to work together for you really to, to get the job done as you want it? For me, like when I'm directing, I'm also producing just mm. by virtue of the fact that I have trust issues and, <laughs> and, uh, and I, have, I have things that I want to happen in a certain way and I want to be a leader on set. I don't want to just tell people what to do. I want to set an example. And I think that producing is a good way to accomplish that. And it's a good way to accomplish, you know, like really being a part of the conversations that need to be had in order to know what you're getting into on, on the day, especially the budget levels in which I've worked at where everyone is overworked and underpaid, you know, being able to fill in the gaps and be helpful and sign off on these a collaborative compromise rather than, than showing up on set. It's like, well, this isn't what we talked about. And they're like, well, it's the best we could do. Like that to me bothers me. It's like, let's have a conversation about it before you pull the trigger on something that we didn't talk about. But then again, I also respect and empathize with the fact that, yeah, like, you know, with more money, anything's possible, but we didn't have that on this one. Yeah, I totally lost the thread of your question. Apologies. No, you're good. That 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 hit it. I, I think it's you know one of the fun things that that I get to see as I watch your career go, and I, I I get to be as much a part of it as I am a cheerleader on the side because I'm I'm in it too. There are very many levels that I've seen you work. You know, you've done the. I mean, we've worked together. Our, our one time getting to collaborate together on something fun was the, um, the quote unquote PSA where I was uh, Easter Bunny um, in, a, in an abortion clinic. And 
like it was a pro-choice, really good idea that you had that, uh, you know, finance, put together, filmed it. And going through that with you, it was really enjoyable to see you in three different phases of the process. The person who wrote it, the person who directed it, the person who produced it. Because you were wearing different hats, but it's not like you were, it's not multiplicity where there were three different Michael Keatons running around doing different things based on personality. You were the one person putting it all together. So I really got to enjoy the layers of Jason Perlman. As you're you're doing that, do you have a sense of, okay, as a writer, this is what I want to do. Here's where I need to set myself up as a producer. Or do you just kind of go with it and figure out you're, you're going to figure it out as you go along? As a writer, I'm like, what's the best version of this that I can put on a page that can at least give my actors and my department heads a great jumping off point? to beat me like <laughs> like how can you all beat this how can we all make this better together like when i write anything i start from that place it's like here's what i know i need so let's get that and then let's blow it out of the water um you know like that's something that's very very important to me i always want to make sure that i get in the can the thing that i want and then i'm like awesome like give me a variation on that take a variation on that reaction um let's play from there um that's my process on the writing side which bleeds into directing and then producing. And then on the directing side, so really like I approach as a writer and as I'm writing, I'm like, okay, well, this is how I kind of see this panning out via directing, but I don't have like a shot list in mind as I'm like writing it, that kind of comes later. And so then like, once we're actually making the thing, then I'm like, okay, well, what's my shot list so I can know how to produce to that. And then the shot list even is a, is a work in progress. Like I'll have, I'll have what I know I need, but then I'm like, okay, well, I always put like little like like X's near shots in my shot list. So like, I know I can kill this if we're running low on time. So that there's that. And then there's also like, you know, like from the producerial standpoint, it's like, okay, well, now I got to get my department heads and have those conversations. And, um, you know, as a director, I'm putting together a Pinterest board or like a lookbook of like, okay, this is what I, the variations of what I think something could be. And here's like, different ideas for my department heads and then take those and run with them. And I like people who don't take my, my inspiration so literally, like I want them to come back to me with like a mashup of things or like, I saw that you like this. So I took it to this place. And then mm -hmm. at least it's a conversation. I can be like, you know what? It's more like what I thought, like what I originally wanted it to be less of what you brought or vice versa. Cause the best thing on set in prep in post all the way through delivery are the moments where you get to be surprised by your team. That's great. And that's really what I love working with you. It's like you have an expectation, but you also have enough leeway to let me bring my own thing to it. And then together we're sort of making magic. It's not like we're, we're speaking with the same voice, but we're certainly singing the same song. And one of us is providing the melody. There's a harmony back there. You know, maybe the person doing the makeups, providing the baseline, you know, it, it's a really fun collaborative process. That said, it started with you and it started with an idea. And I think something interesting I find is that you have one blank page to start with, but it's almost like you have three blank pages to go with. You have your writer blank page, you have your director, and then the producer trying to figure out how to make all of this go. How do you deal with the creative anxiety that comes with staring at the blank page and knowing that you have an idea you want to go with, but you're right at the beginning with it? I mean, that's always there. <laughs> that, <laughs> that doesn't go away. That doesn't huh? go away. Um, 
Yeah, my least favorite part of a of a project that I'm writing is always like the first couple days. Because mm. like then it's like you're you're getting to know your characters, you're getting to know where you want to take it. Like it's like it's up in the air. And like I am like a huge proponent of outlining. Like almost yes. like too much. Um, but like, and even then it's like I'll even start pre-outline. It's like I'll do stream of consciousness. Like, what is this project? Like, what do I want to say with it? Who's it for? You know, like I, I have like a very strict, like I'll do like, <laughs> I'll even like write out like all of like my buckets that like I want to fill in just so I can like, I don't, I'm not staring at a blank, blank page. So the title, log line, comps, like movies or TV shows that it's like, you know, well, like a template, a, a creative yeah. template to start from, you know, like short synopsis, um, you know, like, which is a little bit bigger than a log line, a couple of paragraphs, uh, characters, uh, tone and style, pilot, if it's a, you know, if it's a movie or, you know, like just sort of like, not an outline outline, if it's, you know, a, a pilot or a movie, more like sort of like talking about the idea, almost like what I would, I almost write it like I'm pitching it. And then like what I can then do is I can then take that language later when I do pitch it and I can put it into a pitch script that I can then have beats for as I rehearse that. Or, you know, my, my, my little secret on Zoom, I love Zoom pitches because you can basically use your pitch script as a, as a teleprompter. That makes the pitch process easier for you or just clearer? Uh, way clearer. Because like I always, whenever I would do pitches in person, I would always almost inevitably, no matter how many times I've rehearsed it, I would leave something out. But then look, the great thing about pitches is ideally if you hook someone, they're gonna have questions. They wanna have, they wanna ask you questions. So it is tough. It's like you can't pitch a full 90-minute movie in a 20-minute pitch, but you know, like you can set up the right things for them to then have questions on. And that's hard too, because they might not pick up on certain things, they might tune out for a minute. You know, like it, that can be hard. But I mean, for me, I like being able to know that I, I said everything that I set out to say because I more or less had had beats in front of me. And you don't want to read from it and you still have to kind of like perform your pitch. But I, I love that. And like I, I use those like early blank, like that, those like early outlines or like, you know, like treatments, you know, like I'll use pieces of that for submission letters because the log line you need and like comps you need. And I'll use that for also um, for also pitching. I'll use pieces of that. So it's all, there's something that's wasted. And then I'll also have like, as I'm like whittling things down, I always have, like, I keep a note open in my like iPhone or whatever, my notes app. And I'll always have like a folder for every project. Then I'll have something that I just call scratch. And then I have the date and I'll, cause I'm so afraid of deleting anything that I might need even though most of it's garbage, if I'm deleting it, it's probably because I don't need it. I'm so paranoid about it that I'll cut, I'll, I'll cut it out of one document and I'll paste it into Scratch. And I'll like, just so if I ever need it, I can just go back there. And if I'm ever like stuck on a project, I'll just kind of go back and read through the Scratch stuff. And sometimes there's something that you're like, oh yeah, I was going to do something with that idea and I didn't. And it kind of puts you back on track and sometimes just reminds you of what not to do. I mean, I, I think that's great. As much as I love to outline and I consider myself a planner, I am not against pantsing at all. The, 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 if, uh, writing by the seat of your pants, just going with it, going with the flow, seeing what happens. I actually think that is a majorly important part of the process is just seeing what happens, making discoveries. But I find it hard to just make discoveries in a void. So laying out that initial background, backstory, uh, brainstorms, the scratch sheet that you have, I, I, I think you're onto something because any of those ideas came out of the work that you were doing to find the more perfect way of, of approaching the idea. So it is all useful and you don't want to use that. It's the, the detritus of being a creative, I feel. Oh, yeah. um, but of course, it's not going to always make it into your pitch. 
when you're pitching, how do you get yourself ready to go into the room? Is there a, do you have a ritual? Is there a way that you go in? Do you just, do you just wing it and know that the stuff that you did pre is going to hit you in the room? Or are you actually going through a um, kind of monologue that you've written yourself and then allowing yourself to branch off when the conversation goes? If I've pitched the same project within 48 hours, I won't rehearse it. Um, but if I haven't, I will rehearse it earlier that day. Um, I'll run through it on Zoom with my slides. And you know what? I, and I time myself. And I'm almost always starting and stopping and changing things and trying to continue to hone it so that when I get in there, I'm like, okay, cool. I, I got the junk out of that run through. And now I'm going to do the real thing. I do a vocal and physical warm up. I, uh, I mean, like, you know, we both have acting backgrounds. Uh -huh. and, like, it's a performance. You're not, you're not just going in there to tell someone about your story. You have to paint them a fucking picture. You know, like, I can't tell you how many writers just, just you know, like, they, they haven't massaged that, that part of it. Because it's like, I'm a writer. I'm not a performer. You know, I write because I don't want to be on camera. Like, yeah, totally. But you got to get people excited about your project. Right. Um, and look, yes, you want your script to speak for itself. And it should. But a little known secret is a lot of executives, not all, a lot of them, though, don't like to read. And even if they love your script... If you're not at a certain point in your career, you still have to get them on your, you have to get them on your team and get them on your side. And part of that is just being really captivating in a pitch and being really fun and like having a sense of humor about shit. You know, like I have one line, it seems to get a laugh uh, whenever I'm, we're pitching it. So we're pitching a movie and I'm just like, you know, like this is, you know, the town, the suburban town this takes place in is any town USA or any town Canada for tax incentive pur purposes. We're open. <laughs> you know, like, okay. it's, it's stupid, but like for whatever reason, it just sort of like, I, it takes us out of the story for a minute and it reminds us like, like, yeah, we're all just people here who have industry experience and who want to make shit together. And we're thinking stupid. about that. Yeah. It's totally stupid, but it's stupid in the best way. I mean, it's the kind of stupid that makes people say, oh, he's just a guy. He's a guy that doesn't take himself too seriously. Uh, you know, an icebreaker like that is essential in the room because Ultimately, people who get involved with your work, they're going to be getting involved with you for a duration of time. It's not just a one and done, you're coming and we'll be done with it. It's like, do I want to collaborate with this person? And am I willing to bring them into the negotiations of making compromises? Because I believe they have a good head on their shoulders for this kind of thing. Even if, even if during the creative process, we know we may come to disagreements. So, so tell me a little bit, I know you've had a ton of successful pitches because I get to see all of the work you do. And that comes from walking into the room and getting your stuff, getting them to say yes, but they don't always say yes. And in fact, I would assume you get a lot of no's that we don't see a lot. It's what so nice is it? To hear you say that I've had successful pitches because I've had so many more unsuccessful that, pitches. I mean, that's it. That's it. We, we never see those failures. But I think failure, that's one of the things about this podcast that I, I really want people who listen to bring into it is that failure is not death. Failure is simply an opportunity to learn from experience. So how do you deal with moments that you feel like you failed or, or even, even worse, where you don't necessarily feel like you failed, but you got the no anyway? Well, if my fiance was here right now, she'd, uh, she'd tell you that what I'm about to say is a total and complete lie. <laughs> but like, I, I, try, I try to look at every pitch as an opportunity, not to sell someone on the exact project, but to sell them on me. Because if they don't say yes, and the odds are much higher that they will say no than they will say yes, they might say next, yes to me the next time. And so if I can get them 
to just like me, I have one more person I can send a project when I have something that's right for them again. And like that to me is the biggest win. Because look, there are people I've reached out to years after having pitched them something because I just didn't have anything that was right for them or other things came up in the meanwhile. It took me away from taking projects out. Um, and when I go back to them, you know, seven times out of 10, I'll typically get a response. Oh yeah, it's great to hear from you again. Let's set something up just to catch up. And then I'm like, I soft pitch. And then we set up the real pitch. And like, then you go in with that in mind. Um, but there's a process of things. And I think it's just a matter of like, remembering that executives, development executives, producers, they, they are hearing pitches every day. So it's a matter of like, what do you bring that's different? And yes, it's your story, but it's also you. Um, and it's also forming a relationship and continuing a relationship. So I try to look at it as like, there are no failures. There's only making a good impression and continuing to show that you're fun and that you have great ideas and that you're collaborative and that when you are answering their questions, that you're not throwing them out and be like, no, I thought about that and I hate it. Like, it's like, that's interesting. Here's what I love about what you just said. And then finding a way to apply it to the work that you've done already. And sometimes someone will say something that is actually a fucking awesome idea. And you're like, like, and I'll tell someone, I'm like, I have not thought about that. So I can't go into too much depth about it, but I'm running it down because I think that's great. And I will definitely incorporate it into what I'm going to do. But um, yeah, I felt very much like I've had failures and I've gotten enough calls where I'm like, I suck at this. Uh, I'm awful. Um, why would anyone ever talk to me again? Uh, and, well, when, when that happens, do you, do you tend to find yourself lingering in the woe is me? I can't believe I'm so bad. How, how, how dare I even try to be creative? Do you, do you go to, oh, well, screw them. They didn't like me. So, so I, I clearly the problem is them or, or is there, do you just move on from it? Do you find a way to, to, to keep going with your day, even though technically the worst thing that could have happened to you happened? Depends on what point in the day it happens. <laughs> <laughs> you prefer a morning rejection or an afternoon? rejection i guess <laughs> yeah i mean like it's tough i had a, a couple months ago i think i had like a 2 or 3 p.m pitch and it didn't go exactly the way that i wanted it to like but it was fine like but i was i was thinking about it the rest of the day like and i couldn't get anything else done and uh that sucks you know like and i'm not i need to be better about like yo jason go for a walk stop staring at a screen for a minute you know, like you're in a bad mood because something happened, just go and clear your head. And I have a really bad habit of just being like, no, nose to the grindstone. I'm going to just punish myself and sit here and stare at this thing and write one sentence over and over again for three hours. Um, not helpful, not a good idea, but I've fallen prey to it a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get that. And, you know, as a, as a person who has really moved into a writing career, there's, there's a lot of you know, coming back and saying, well, is there a problem here or did it just not connect with them? But it's, there's a tool I, I discovered, um, I discovered because it was given to me by a mentor um, as an actor, which was you have an audition, you, you're going to be thinking about the audition all day. You go to the audition, you do the audition. And then when you're done with the audition, you're going to get in the elevator and you're going to think about all the ways you could have done the audition better. And a way to, to fight that is to make a plan to have something to do afterwards. You know, after your audition, have the coffee that you always go to, have the place, the, the hill you always hike to, have the, even if it's a TV show to take your mind off it, have that TV show, that little comfort food you'll always have. Is, is there something that you do to keep your mind positive as you're approaching this industry, which can feel negative at times? Yeah, I mean, like, well, sometimes what I do just to kind of like break up my day, because I do do so many different, different yet complementary things within the same field, is like if I'm if I have a pitch like and that op, if that's really taxing my creative 
and performer brain. Um, you know, like at one point of the day, I'll be like, okay, well, is there anything that I need to budget? Or is there anything that I need to like, are there just like cold, like cold emails I need to send or like follow-ups I need to send that use like a different part of my brain, like a more like- Busy work. Yeah, kind of like, you know, things that need to get done, but that are going to allow me to kind of like put that one area of my brain to rest for a little while and then but allow me to stay productive. And for a long time, I had a very, not an office job, but I worked for one company for like seven and a half years as an in-house director, executive producer. And so like I was working for a company, I, I would, I could take walks, you know, like, and I would take a lunch break sometimes, but like, I was also very much a workaholic and like, that was my identity. And that also wasn't helpful. And the the pandemic put a stop to that. But even now, like I've, I'm of the mindset of like, well, I was like working consistently like 10 to 14 hours a day for seven-ish years. Like I can find things to do. I'm good at finding, at like creating work for myself. And I, I, I try to make sure that the work gets a project or a goal further down the line, obviously, because what would be the point otherwise? Um, but yeah, I mean, staying positive. I mean, celebrating small victories is really important. I'm bad at it. I'm really fucking bad at it because I know the sad truth of things. Like I sold the television show in November of 2020 and we just finished signing the contracts. The pilot is just being written right now. You know, like that's awesome. These are huge victories, but it's, it's been a year and change of just sort of, no, it's 2022. So <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah. Uh, they're just clicking away there. The, the numbers yeah, at the end, almost two years, you know, like, and like, it's like, crazy to be like, okay, like when that happened, I didn't celebrate. I was like, oh, that's exciting. But I didn't celebrate because I, I knew how much time it could take. And I knew, you know, like that anything could happen to kill the deal um, between now and the time it could be made. And even it's now. I love that because um, recently there was a, a, a conversation. I, I spent a lot of time on Twitter, um, maybe, you know, to my benefit, against my benefit. I don't know. I'm enjoying it there. But there's a uh, there was recently a kerfuffle about whether or not to celebrate your small victory. No, only celebrate. Uh, it started off. Somebody said only celebrate when the camera's rolling. But that sort of takes any joy out of your your place in the work that is being done up to the the maybe teeny tiny chance that the camera's ever even going to roll in the first place. Yeah. So it's like, should I not be, have any joy or celebrate anything for the decade it could take to actually make a project happen? So, so, so in that, I, I think that celebrating yourself, it's not just about the work that you're doing, but it's the fact that you're actually approaching the work and you are getting somebody to, to at least consider, even if you don't ultimately get that camera rolling, it, it means that there's still a trajectory forward for you, for your creativity. It's somewhere, even if it doesn't lead to where you thought it would, like every single thing, you never know how. Well, that's what I like about, you know, as I get into producing more, producers seem to have how much control you have over this stuff. Producers have the more control, even though every producer I talk to and I say, how'd you get it done? Every producer answers, I don't know. It just happened. So there's that sort of uh, stepping away from the trying to control the overlying situation, but stepping into controlling how you respond to what's happening in the situation. I got to uh, say, the, sorry to interrupt you, Gal. Go the for producer it. that says, I, I don't know how it happened. That's a producer that is, that is 
deeply repressing the trauma of getting a thing. You don't want to talk about it. It's just a complex story, really, filled with, <laughs> filled with ups and downs and downs and downs. Got it. <laughs> Um, that's cool. Well, would you, would you rather, would you rather, if it came down to it, would you rather produce your work, but not get the director's chair? Or would you like to have the director's chair on your work, but not necessarily have the ultimate producer control? Um, my favorite thing that I get to do is work with actors. So it would always be directing. Producing to me, while I do enjoy parts of it, being a leader, creating a team, I like helping create a good environment, making new relationships. Um, it is kind of a means to an end. It's, it's, an, it's a way to get myself back to the directing chair. And now uh, that I'm no longer working full-time at a, at a, at a company and um, you know, like I, I have a lot of television directing experience at a certain budgetary level, which is low, and the projects that are most of the projects that get made are double, triple, quadruple the cost, like per episode, the cost of the series, the full series that I have made in the past. Now I'm in a situation where writing pilots and pitching TV shows is a means to an end to get a thing made and to get myself to direct. Well, like it's, it's such a weird thing, but it's like, I, you know, it's anything to get back to the thing that I love to do the most. That's um, what it is. You can't just sit back and wait for somebody to say, Hey, here's a, here's a gig I want to hire you for. You want to direct this. It's like, if there's a project that you're passionate about, you have to push, push, push to do the other work that gets you the thing that you want to do. I, I got into writing thinking that, this was the only way I could act was because, you know, I can, of course, go out for auditions, but if I want to actually have a voice in the getting something made, I, I have to at least have my hand in, in the writing of it. But Which you're not wrong about. I don't think you were wrong about. Well, I, I think that's what I enjoy about you most because it has looked like, even though it's been a lot of work, the success has come because you've put in the work and you found the connections that you've made. So, so I want to ask you, because you have had sort of, you know, one of those industry barometers of success people want to hear about, which is you've been nominated for an Emmy. And actually, I guess you were nominated for two Emmys, both as a director and as a producer on uh, Zach and Mia, which people can go watch right now. Seasons one and two on Netflix. It's it's up for, for anybody to stream right now if they want to. A, a young adult drama series that really touched a lot of hearts. What was it like making that and getting the success to the point where somebody wanted to at least consider you for an award for it. Oh man. Uh, it was an absolute joy to get to make that show. You know, like that show was, I mean, it's been an absolute highlight of my career. The, like the executives that were on it believed in it and loved it. Um, you know, like, even though there were a lot of obstacles to getting it made, um, you know, like I saw it and loved it. I begged to be a part of it. I was told early days that I was not their first choice, but to feel free to check back in on it. I wanted to be a part of the development of it. I was told that there were already too many cooks in the kitchen. I, I told this story privately to the people that would be offended by this story. So I'm That's sure okay. nobody's listening to this podcast anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like I, I wanted so badly to, I had just done a, before Zach and Mia, I had done a, a horror anthology television series called Sleep Tight. It started as basically me just going to my bosses at Awesomeness TV and saying, we should be doing our, our main demo is Gen Z girls. They make up over, over like 50, 60% of the horror movie going audience. We're not really making horror at the time. We weren't at the time. We should be doing that. And I think that we could do it at the same price point that we're doing, uh, you know, like a like minute of finalized footage um, plus dollar 
we can apply that same equation uh, that we were doing uh, like minute of finalized footage plus dollar for sketch comedy. We can apply that same model to horror and these things will just be a little bit longer. And I was basically told, <laughs> um, I was told that I wasn't scary um, and that I, uh, I shouldn't be doing horror. Uh, but we, I ended up proving the wrong. I, ended, I just ended up writing, I wrote probably like 14 horror shorts between eight and 15 pages long over the course of about a year and a half. Um, and just kind of kept sending to the executives. Eventually they said, yes, we got to make, we made a few of them and that they, we made a few shorts. Then they came to me and they said, these are good. Can we make six 22 minute episodes out of these shorts? Um, and would you be, would you hire other directors and writers to work with you on it and oversee it? I said, absolutely. We figured it out, we put it together. That whole show, that whole like six 22 minute episode season of TV, not including me because I was overhead for the company because I was a, a full-time employee for them, was around $300,000 to make two hours and 20 minutes of content, which is wow. nothing. Now look, there were a lot of corners that were cut, but it ended up streaming internationally in different territories and it made the company some, some money from those additional sales. And it was a Go90 show back when Go90 was a thing. Um, which there, fulfilled. there are going to be very few people to remember that people barely remember Quibi at this point. So go yeah. 90. It's going to be like, Oh, what? When Verizon wanted to do TV, what? A TV for your phone. And uh, it was a good idea, but it was just sadly poorly marketed. Um, but um, there were a lot of great shows on there and that was one of them. And then um, uh, I, I, after doing that project, I thought making a really cheap show would mean like that they would put more money into the marketing of it. And that's not the case. Marketing dollars are typically only spent around projects that they've already, a company's already made a sizable investment and it needs to make their money back on. So that was a good learning experience for me. So I started to think of, okay, well, what are the projects that my, my bosses care about? So I tried to kind of like get involved in some of those projects and I was kind of told not to and to more or less stay in my lane. So I started to steal scripts off of Xerox machines and out of dumpsters. Um, and whenever I would see something that looked interesting, I would just take it. So one day the Zach and Mia uh, episode one script <laughs> came off the Xerox machine. <laughs> and I'm sure a colleague had printed it for themselves and uh, I stole it um, and I read it and uh, I loved it. And I immediately went into my boss's office. And I go, I happen to find this script. What is it? Like, is it, are we making this? It's so good. I was told, hey, so the head of the company doesn't like it. We love it. We're about to start working with a new writer who's going to rewrite all of the episodes. They had paid a writer. They had optioned a book uh, called Zach and Mia, written by the amazing uh, Amanda Betts, AJ Betts. And uh, they had hired a writer. The head of the company didn't love his take. They hired a new writer who's great as well. Um, and he was doing great work on the project, but they still weren't feeling like it was a good project for the company at the time. I was like, look, I love this. If I can be helpful, let me know. They said, you're not our first choice. I said, no worries. I'll be back. I did a bunch of other work for them over a year, and a year, year and a half. I kind of checked in once a month-ish and they would be like, still no news, but we're rewriting them still. Finally, at the end, my boss said, look, they still don't want to make them make the show. Um, I said, I would love to pitch on it. Can I at least pitch on it? And she was just like, sure, you know, like set a meeting. And so I set a meeting with the head of the company and our head of production and the development executive who had brought the project in. I put together like a 20 page, 20 minute like pitch of like, here's why our audience will love this show. Here's what is great about it. Here's what it is. Here's what it's not. And it was really important to kind of like the insider info I got was don't sell them. It's a show about two kids who 
meet, become friends, and fall in love in an oncology ward where they're both inpatient for different kinds of cancer. And ultimately, it's about the experience of being totally isolated, being taken completely out of what is normal for a teenager, and having to deal with your mortality at an age where you should not have to deal with it. It's a very real topic. It's a very heavy topic. The one insider info I got was, do not sell the, the drama, sell the romance. Like it's about people falling in love. It's not about the sadness. The romance supersedes the sadness. And look, that was a good idea for a couple of reasons, because I, ha I had the information that I knew that this is what's going to make this show prohibitive to the people that actually greenlight this company. Also, it helped me to really look at the hope, like look at the things that these kids have to look forward to, because these are real kids that go through this situation and they have real families and real issues. So ultimately, my goal was, okay, yes, this is for teenagers and people who like YA content, but really it's for the, the hyper niche group of young people who are battling cancer. And it's designed to give them hope of what comes after they beat it. Um, but to also be open to the idea that not everyone does beat it. But even if you don't, your life still matters because of the people that you still touch and relate to. And like, it still makes me emotional just talking about it because we, in the process of like getting that green light in. And the other thing I did before I move on to the more emotional stuff, I went to our our like mainline producer at the company. I said, what's our cheapest series that we're doing right now? And he said, it's this on this network for $2.4 million for six 22 minute episodes. Like I said, got it. So then I, uh, so I, I went in and I said uh, to the head of the company, I'll do all this for you. And it's about romance and it's great. And here are the, the talent that we want, who we know that our audience loves. And, and here's what we're going to do. And I'll do all of this six 22 minute episodes for half the cost of your cheapest show. And I knew that that would, all, that would be kind of like, ideally, the silver bullet. And he said, and so not, half of that amount of money was 1.2 million. And he said, you'll do it for 900K and you have a deal. And I said, shook hands on it. And then $1.2 million later, we may actually make the show. <laughs> um, look, there are things where like, my line producer on that show was terrified of the head of production at the company. And we needed certain things. And he would be like, I can't go back to him and ask for more money. I can't go back and ask for more. I was like, well, we sold them on these visual concepts, tone and style wise. So I would cut deals with my department heads where I would say, give us a discount on your kit. Give us a discount on my camera gear, on my lighting gear, and I will pay you in cash personally. And that was thousands of dollars that I never made back. Um, but the people that were in charge wouldn't say yes to things. They were like, well, what else are you going to give up? And I was like, well, we sold you on all these things and they cost us much money. So what do you want? And... I was uncompromising on certain things and rather than going, cause I didn't feel like I could at that point in time. Cause I was, that was also the downside of being a full-time employee at a company. I had to work with these people after this project. So I was just like, okay, well, I'm going to then put my own money into this thing. And if nothing else, I'm going to, to make this everything I want it to be so that I can use it as a calling card for new work. And ideally, so I could get to a higher budgetary level after the show at the company that I was at, which did end up happening with season two. Season two was double the budget. And uh, I didn't have to do that for season two. Which was after, nice. after the success for season one, I would hope that they would see, well, maybe we've got something here that we can actually, we're no longer taking a chance on it. Jason already took the chance on it for us and got it done. At the same time though, like I directed every single episode of season one and for season two, uh, they told me you won't be doing that this time around because that's not how TV works, they told me. And I said, 
all due respect, the only reason that we were able to make this for that amount of money is because we shot it, we cross-boarded it, which means that whenever we'd go to a new location, we shot out every single scene that happened at that location, which doesn't happen in TV because TV is typically being written as it's being shot. Um, so you're not able to do scenes from episode eight because episode eight hasn't been written yet. Um, so you have to go back to locations, which means more money being spent. So my thought was, okay, we're going to do this as a movie. We're going to shoot it as a movie. And that saved us an insane amount of money. And we ended up still doing that in a lot of ways on, on season two. But I, I went to my, my then boss at the time and I said, look, you know, like you're going to end up putting a lot more money into this that you don't need to if you do it this way. And that my new boss had not really been a part of season one. And that person just basically said, this is how you do TV. I don't want to hear anything else. We're not talking about this anymore. I said, great. So I brought a bunch of options for directors. And I said, I just want you to know that's my thoughts on it, but I'm, I'm an employee. I'm, I'm here to get it done. And I listened to her and we, and we did it. I brought that person. I can negotiate a little bit. I was like, okay, fine. Well then I, if we're doing six episodes, I'm going to give up one of those episodes. And they were like, fine. And so then we brought in a great director who ended up being a friend of mine that they chose and uh, love, love him dearly. And uh, he did a great job. You know, like that is all to say that even though season one was, was a success, when something is a success, it typically means you get more cooks in the kitchen, not fewer. That's a crazy progression from stealing a script out of a Xerox machine to getting, you know, for yourself, two Emmy nominations for the show, six Emmy nominations, including winning for best writing and best uh, actress. And when you think about it, not in the process, you're like, of course, they got a show done. It's TV. That's what that's what happens. But even in the process of it, you were finding that you had to both empathize with what was happening in the script, empathize with it in a way that someone could see the value in it, and then deal with making the show under, well, we see the value in it, but we only see the value in it up to this certain level. And so you have to be able to make the show under these parameters in order to be successful. And you having to decide whether or not the empathy for the project was going to lead you to the place where you wanted to go with it. Ultimately, you decided it was. Was there ever ever a, a point where you were like, this is too hard, I, I need to move on to something else? Not really. Uh, on that you knew one, this no. was the one? Well, like, I, I knew I had to make it. I mean, also because like we, I set up meetings with kids who were inpatient for different kinds of cancer and teenagers who had survived and were still dealing with it. We, we even like in one of my YouTube rabbit holes is I was like, like I, I was learning more and more about being a young person with cancer. And so I was looking up young people that um, were living with cancer or had beaten cancer. And we found an amazing young woman who sadly is no longer with us. Um, you know, like her name is Sophia Gall and uh, we made her a part of the show. Uh, and that was one of my favorite parts of it. And like, so I knew that like, I had a responsibility with the show to like make some of those entertaining and awesome, but also for these kinds of kids like Sophia. Yeah. I mean, like one of the hardest conversations I had on the making of season one and into season two, I never want to hear the words Hollywood cancer ever again. We, it's not there. I kept being told, Jason, this isn't cancer, cancer. It's Hollywood cancer. And I was like, that's fucked up. I had to bite my tongue so fucking hard all the goddamn time. I would go from like having, you know, like video calls or going to, you know, like a UCLA uh, children's hospital and like meeting with like young people who were dealing with this for, as, as a real thing. And then going and having executive conversations where like 
we really, you know, like we let's dial down. You're at a 10 right now on the cancer. Let's dial it down to like a five or six. Wow. Uh, I was like horrified. Yeah. Absolutely horrified. Hey, look, some of these things were like, should he have eyebrows? Should he not have eyebrows? And that was something that we were, we, at the end of the day, we allowed him to, because while most, the vast majority of chemotherapy patients and radiation patients lose their eyebrows due to their hair loss, some do not. And so I was like, fine, let's just say he's one of the ones that don't, even though it's not the realist version of that. And so that was a thing. And I just hated the compromise there, but I did it because I was like, it's more important that the show exists than it doesn't. It's, it's really interesting to find out how you maintain authenticity for the real life situation that people are finding themselves in while still letting the money people, quote unquote, see that we're still making ultimately something that people are supposed to consume and enjoy as opposed to, to learn from. Is there something that as you are going through that process that you have learned in bringing to the next project? What's the, what's the thing you learned doing this that you're going to know going into the next project, this is how I need to maintain the authenticity of the piece? Well, I think it's always a matter of like, if you're telling a story from a, from a, a place of I know everything, uh, your story is always going to be in some way inauthentic, even if, it's, if it reflects your worldview and like how you've come up. So I am a firm believer in always talking to other people who have had similar experiences to the story we're telling or the exact experience of the story we're telling and at least consulting them. We talk to many doctors, many, many nurses, many social workers. Um, we talk to parents. We talk to kids, teenagers, adults who had teen uh, you know, cancer. Uh, I think that there's, it's really important to consult and collaborate and mediate with the people who have lived in a way, either elements of your story or your story. Um, so that you can, you can tell a more authentic version of that. Um, even if it is your own personal history, there might be people that have other perspectives on it that might be interesting to at least know about as you attack telling this thing and sharing it with, with the world that while who, many of whom may see themselves in your version of the story, there might be other things that they don't see themselves in. And look, that's, you can't please everybody, but I do think it's important to see multiple sides. Um, and uh, I try to do that with, uh, with every project that I tell. And from an executive standpoint, I'm dealing with studio notes and production company notes. It's really important, like I was saying before, to find the compromise, find, find the note behind the note. You know, like I, like I, one of my, <laughs> the same exec that I had fights with about Hollywood cancer and, you know, that kind of thing would always be like, look, the note behind the note is this. So how do we get to that? It's like, fine, if this approach isn't working, how do we get to this? And that I'm forever grateful for because I, I take that into everything I give notes on now. I'm like, cool. Like, this is what I think is, this is what I would do. But like, here's the thought behind the thought, like the, from a more uh, macro mindset, how do we get there together? And there's almost always a intersection of what the executive needs, either because of a, a network rule or uh, they've done something similar in another show, uh, or it's just not their cup of tea. Um, there's a way to find what they need from you and what you love about your project and find something from that note that could enhance the project. I love that. And I, I think that's really pertinent that there is no situation in this creative work that we're doing where you won't be getting notes at some point. Even when you are at the top of the top, you're going to get notes from critics and the audience and you know your mom who watched the show and is like, she didn't quite like this moment, but she really loved this character. I mean, that all comes into it because what we're trying to do 
is we're trying to create authentic life in a um, non-literal place. We're, we're not actually with these characters, but these characters, they stand in for us so that we can experience something secondhand through them. And watching you do your work, it's really inspiring because you, I think, have a really good knack of hitting that mark regardless of genre. So I think I think for my, my, my last question today is when you're working in your horror versus drama versus I know you do comedy too, is there anything that separates those things or do you find that the work you do is sort of like universal in how you approach story? Well, I always start everything from two questions. Who's it for and what's it trying to say? You know, like, who is your audience? Who's, because like, look, well, you don't, no one wants to be like, you know, like I'm making some, everyone wants to be, I'm making something for everyone. This is for everybody. At the end of the day, you're not going to make something for everybody. You know, like you might make something for the majority of people, um, but you will definitely never make anything for everybody, especially today when audiences can be so niche and still help a show be popular and continue season to season. So I ultimately think that I approach something from a standpoint of who is this ultimately for? Who's my ideal audience member? And then what is, it, what is so important that I say to them with this concept? Like, what, what do I want to say to them without preaching to them or beating them over the head with it? And like, if it's comedy, if it's drama, if it's horror, if it's thriller, if it's sci-fi, it all starts from there. And then you start to kind of work in the allegories of certain things. Like I love genre uh, stories so much, you know, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thriller, uh, because you have the ability through those genres to talk about big things in our, in our society, in our world uh, that otherwise might uh, be very divisive. Um, but telling them through the lens of genre allows people to focus on the story and not even really know that there's another message behind it, but they can start to see it the more they engage with it and talk about it. So those are things that I definitely do every single time that are the same throughout. And things that are different, you know, just sort of depend on like, well, what's the, what do I want people to walk away with from that message of, of what are you trying to say? If I want them to walk away with hope, with fear, trying to get them to, to go do something, buy a product, uh, engage with a service, take to the streets. You know, like, what is it uh, that, I, that I want from them as an audience? Right. Uh, the revolution will not be televised, but it will certainly start from Jason's ideas on television. Uh, I mean, I'm sure people uh, much more suited than me. But I mean, look, <laughs> I, my thought is if you have nothing to if you have nothing to say, get off the stage. It's an old Ethel Merman quote. You know, like, and I love that, especially in today's uh, environment, because there's so much content that if you're not going to make something that's about something, get out of here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I don't want to hear from you. Mm -hmm. You know, like, well, like that, that could even be like a satire, a takedown of something. It can be lighthearted and fun, but I still think you have to have something that you want to tell people um, about the world, about yourself, uh, about society uh, in order for it to cut through right now. Because if, if you don't have that, it's just kind of noise. And there's so much noise. Thank you, Jason. I, I absolutely love that. And I love the fact that you ended this with an Ethel Merman quote that just brings the, it brings the, uh, the, the level of class up a level. And oh, that's wow. really what I was looking for from you. She's so thank you. Love her. Yeah. Thank you, man. So I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Thanks. And Eddie, what's, what's coming up next for you? Next, uh, I have a show with a big distributor of kids content that's the pilots currently being written and we're very excited it's based on some intellectual property from a children and teen author that everyone knows and loves so we're excited about that uh, i love I, the i love the vagueness of of public things where the contracts are still being signed 
I love that. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's more fun that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Keep it on their toes, Jason. Uh, excited about that. Excited about it. I have a couple of movies that we're uh, out pitching and trying to attach talent to and raising financing for. I'm excited about all that stuff. And yeah, you know, like, onward. I'm getting married later this year. I'm very Woo! excited about that. So Congratulations. Cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a little icing on the cake there. Um, yeah, good bad. for you. It's great. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jason. Appreciate you. Appreciate you, Kyle. Thanks, dude. If you enjoyed this episode of Make Your Stuff and want to support the show, please click the follow button. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at MYS Podcast. And consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash makeyourstuff. I'm your host, Kyle F. Andrews. My consulting producer is Emily Castro. Our theme song is Keep On Dancing by Monday Hope. Until next time, keep making that stuff.